you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Judges, chapter 3. Judges, chapter 3. We're examining the question, what is the right thing to do? Based on the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25 gives us the theme for the whole book. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This morning, we talked about how influencers impact, in some, in some situations, how we determine what is right and what is wrong. Sometimes, in order to uh, arrive at the right decision among a series of options, we need the help of someone who is wise someone whose opinion we respect, someone who is of integrity. And the passage of Scripture that I'm going to read tonight continues that line of thought of the impact of influencers in our lives. Um, and the title of this message is The Influence of an Older Brother. The Influence of an Older Brother. Judges chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you already know that anytime I get up here and read a passage of Scripture, regardless of where it is, whether it's in Judges or Matthew or Nehemiah or Zephaniah, it's always bigger than I am. It's always deeper than I can swim. It's always higher than I can climb. It's always wider than I can reach. And it's no different tonight. The subject of what is the right thing to do is also higher than we can reach. But Lord, I pray that you would show us the places in your word that help us to find some answers to this very important question. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I threw a story out to you. It was a true story. It happened in the summer of 1884. Four men, shipsmen, uh, on a yacht, the Mignonette. They had rounded the lower tip of South Africa and they had proceeded north around the western side of Africa toward England. 
They were 1,300 miles away from the Cape of Good Hope when the Mignonette was hit by a large wave and it capsized, and the four crew members were able to escape only by a small lifeboat. And with them, they took uh, two cans of preserved turnips, and that was all they had, no water, no nothing. And you remember from this morning's story that as time went on, the turnips came and went. The sea turtle that they caught came and went, including his bones as well as his, uh, the meat of the turtle. And then they went for several days without food until finally Dudley, the captain, decided to take the life of the 17-year-old cabin boy whose name was Parker. And then for several days, Captain Dudley, his first mate, Stevens, and a sailor, Brooks, who originally had uh, been opposed to the whole idea, they feasted off of Parker's body until late in July when a rescue ship, a German rescue ship, saw them and rescued them. You all right, Mr. Gentry? I thought you were having a conniption there for a minute. The German ship brought Dudley, Stevens, and Brooks to Falmouth, England, to the port, where they told their story, thinking that they had done nothing wrong, at least Dudley and Stevens. Brooks was kind of quiet at first. And then the three men were arrested. Once they were arrested and realized the severity of their crime, they, the, uh, Dudley and Stevens decided to keep their mouth shut. There was no evidence. And then Brooks decided to turn state's evidence. And you remember that I told you this morning that the final outcome was that they were found guilty of murder, Dudley and Stevens. They were sentenced to the death penalty, but the queen commuted the sentence to six months' time served. And they were out somewhere around uh, Christmas time, really early. I got to thinking, that was the story, those were the facts. But I got to thinking, most of you, when I, when I did a poll, about a 90, 90, to 92% of the people in both services this morning said they should be found guilty of murder. Most people did. There was about 8 to 10% of the folks in both services who said they should not be held guilty of murder, but we should accept their defense of necessity, that they had to do what they did out of necessity. And if they hadn't done it, then all of them would have died. 10% of the folks, 8 to 10% this morning, I'm estimating, said we should have not found them guilty, but a strong majority said we should find them guilty. How many of you this morning said they should be found guilty of murder? Would you just recall? Okay, a good number here tonight too. Let me ask you this. See if this would make any difference. It may not. Probably won't. We'll check it out. What if Parker had consented to it? What if Parker had consented to it in advance? I mean, he'd not consented to being killed, you recall. Uh, Dudley told Brooks, who had opposed, was opposed to the whole thing, he says, you, you need to turn and look the other way. And he'd already told Stevens, his first mate, that as soon as Brooks looks away, he's going to stab him. And he did with a pen knife in the jugular vein. He was not asked for his consent. He was not given a choice. But what if he had consented to it? 
I'm letting you think a little bit on that. We'll take a poll. I'm liking this poll stuff. If Parker had consented to it in advance, how many of you believe that that would change your view of it? Raise your hand. Anybody? Yeah, a few. I see four and a half. Well, yours was like this. <laughs> four or five. Four or five said that his, his consent would change view. Let me, let me modify it just a hair more. And, of course, mainly I'm talking to the folks who, who this morning voted guilty of murder. If the whole plan had been Parker's idea, Not just that he'd consented to somebody else's idea, that's one thing, but if, if the idea had been his, and if he had said, not only do I suggest this idea to you, Captain Dudley and First Mate Stevens and Sailor Brooks, but I suggest to you, in lieu of the fact that you have family and I don't, that I be the one you take. Now think about that for just a minute. How many of you who voted guilty of murder this morning would change your mind if you knew that it was Parker's plan? Raise your hand. Okay. Pretty much the same ones who said they'd vote a different way if it was consent. What is the right thing to do? So far we've seen these principles at work. Sometimes the right thing to do depends upon what is best for the overall welfare of all the ones involved. One for five. Dudley said this principle ought to, ought to work because it's better for one to die than for, the, for all of us to die. Sometimes, secondly, what is right is based upon the value we place upon persons or things that are salvaged as a result of our act. The value of Parker in Dudley's mind was not as high as the value of Brooks, Stevens, or himself. And it played into his decision to take Parker's life. When you and I were discussing the trolley, if it was your only child at the end of the sidetrack, it influenced, at least to some extent, whether you took the sidetrack or remained straight ahead killing the five or not killing the five. Then we found out also that sometimes the right thing to do is based upon the inherent nature of the act. That is the built-in nature of the act. All of you, some of you very, very seriously and severely told me in no uncertain terms it was dead wrong to push that fat man over onto the trolley track. A couple of you came up to me and they said, please tell me you didn't come up with that story on your own because if you did... And the reason that you decided that the one for five principle didn't work and the values principle didn't work there is because there was something in the built-in nature of the act of pushing that man over the bridge that was just flat wrong. Some things are just wrong. 
And you're right when you said that. Then we found out that sometimes our ability to discover what is right and do what is right is hampered when we allow even just a little bit of sin to take root in our lives. It skews our ability to to really look at things the way they really are, especially the way that God looks at things, and decide what is right to do. And usually, when we let just a little bit of sin in our lives, we won't make the right decision. A little bit of leaven. Jesus said, leavens the whole lump. It skews the whole lump. And then this morning we found out that sometimes in trying to figure out right and wrong, influencers have an impact on what we deem to be right. Sometimes they influence us in the wrong direction, sometimes in the right direction, but certainly every one of us have certain situations that we're confronted with where a right or a wrong option or options are given and we can't figure out what the right thing to do is, and we will, we will seek the counsel of someone we respect. The period of the judges was a dark time. Joshua was dead. They had no leader. Without an influencer like Joshua, the people were kind of left to their own. It's kind of like Haiti today. You know the reason? You know the reason why so many people have not been helped? They don't have anybody heading up the relief operation. They're without an influencer. Now, the United States is trying to help. Other nations are trying to help. I was impressed yesterday. This, is, this really has little to do with the sermon, I guess. But there was a relief team, two relief teams. Uh, actually, there were three in one place. At a, at a collapsed motel, there was a, a, a Mexican relief team, a Jordanian relief team, and an Israeli relief team, and they were working in concert with each other. I was really impressed that those Jordanians and Israelis were working together. I'm telling you right now, I was impressed by that. I, I, it, it, it moved me. If only we could see that kind of concert all the time. That was the right thing to do. Sometimes you've got to lay aside differences and do what's right. And that was a case where they did. But, but outside of small isolated instances like that, Haiti's biggest problem now is not so much that they had an earthquake, but in the aftermath of the earthquake, there was nobody to influence where the relief stuff went. We need influencers. In this passage of Scripture, we find one of those isolated times during the period of the judges where God raises up an influencer. Now, the period of the judges is dark because for the most part, they don't have influencers. The the stories that we find in the book of Judges, keep in mind that Judges covers a period that is debatable in, in, uh, in its lifespan, but it's going to be somewhere between 250 and 400 years. Even if you take the lower part of that, 250 years, it's not all covered by the stories we find in the book of Judges. There's a lot of period of time in there when people are going about with nobody to lead them, no one to influence them on how to do what is right. But here's one of those times when God raises up somebody. At first, 
the children of Israel were acting without an influencer and they did what was evil and God let them fall into the hands of a foreign king and they were uh, subject to him as slaves for eight years. The people cried out and so God, hearing their cries, he raises up a deliverer. His name is Othniel. It's an interesting name. It has the word God, the name God built into it right there in the back of it. Othniel, there it is, El. And we find that Othniel is influenced by Caleb. You remember Caleb? Caleb is one of two people out of a committee of 12. The other person, uh, the other second person was Joshua. Joshua and Caleb were the only two of the 12 spies. You remember that? Moses led the children of Israel out into the desert. They'd been there two years, and God says, send a committee of 12, one person, one representative from each of the 12 tribes into Canaan, into the land that I have given you, past tense, I have given you, and let them just look at it, bring back some fruit of it. And they came back, and of that committee of 12, they, they recommended at a 10 to 2 vote not to go in. But of the two that voted to go in, you got Joshua and Caleb. And by the way, can anybody remember any of the names of any of the ten? Isn't that something? We remember those two. Caleb was one of them. Caleb's still alive. His buddy Joshua is gone. Now, Caleb is a leader. He's not a leader of the caliber Joshua is, but he's still a leader. And he's able to influence people. Now, we find out a little about the connection between... Uh, Caleb and Othniel in a couple of places. First of all, it's Joshua chapter 15. I'm going to read this for you. It's not on the slide, so listen real carefully. Joshua 15, verse 13. In accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion in Judah. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba is the forefather of Anak. From Hebron, Caleb drove out, to, drove out the three Anakites, Sheshai, Ahiman, Talmai, descendants of Anak. Now listen to this real carefully because you'll hear it again. From there, he marched against the people living in Debir. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksah in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, took it. And so Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. Now, according to Joshua right there, uh, Othniel is the son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother. Now, the Hebrew word is, is hard to translate. It can be translated brother or younger brother or stepfather, which really complicates things. That means that Othniel ended up being married either to his stepsister, uh, or his first cousin. Either way, you look at it. It's one of those two. But Caleb gave his daughter to be married to Othniel. Now, still reading in Joshua chapter 15, verse 18. One day, when Aksah came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father Caleb for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favor, since you have given me land in the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Now that's Joshua 15. Now let's look at Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1, 
Beginning with verse 11. From there they advanced against the people living in Debir. You've heard this before already. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures kiriath Sefer. You've heard that before, haven't you? Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, we're still in Judges chapter 1, sounds like Joshua 15, she urged him to ask her father Caleb for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? And she replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me the land in the Legev, in the Negev, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Caleb was an influencer. He influenced, obviously, his family. He also influenced Othniel. And they were all influenced, I'm sure, by Kenaz, who was the uh, father of Othniel and somehow related to Caleb, either as a younger brother or as a stepfather, depending on how you translate the Hebrew word. But the, the thing about it is this. Caleb, even though he had not risen to the heights of leadership of Joshua, he was still of such respect among the people that he was an influencer in how people determine what was the right thing to do. Now I want to remind you of something I gave you this morning, and that is what an influencer is. Because this is what Caleb was, this is what some of you are, and this is what all of us have. An influencer is someone who has earned the respect of people. People look up to him or her. An influencer is someone who has followers, not just taking a walk, has followers. An influencer is someone whose opinions sway the opinions and behaviors of other people. Moses did that, Joshua did that, and to a lesser degree, Caleb also did that. Now really, it leads me to, uh, to two questions that I want us to think about, and I really just want to leave them with you and me to answer for each for ourselves as we leave here tonight. Uh, who are you influencing? And who am I influencing? And who influences you? This is not a bad question. I'm not looking for, oh, you shouldn't let that... I'm, who influences you? Who do you influence? At what point would you go to an influencer? And a real question is this. Those of us who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior and Lord, who are we influencing for Christ? The title of the message assumes that I look at Kenaz as Caleb's younger brother. The influence of Caleb, the influence of Kenaz, the influence of Othniel, the influence of Othniel's new wife, Oxa. Who influences you? Consider this story. Are you ready? After nine years of trying unsuccessfully to have children, James and Monica Bachman are expecting a baby. 
I should say babies, because an ultrasound has shown that she is carrying triplets. Monica, who's 38 years old, is in her eighth month of the pregnancy. In that eighth month, she developed a very serious health condition that resulted in her hemorrhaging, experiencing severe internal bleeding. And the doctors, she has a team of doctors, three of them. One of them is a very strong Christian, has prayed with this couple several times. The doctors, the three of them, have tried to stop the bleeding without success. And they came to a place in her pregnancy where the three of them unanimously concluded that the final outcome of this deal was going to be that either the mother was going to die or the children were going to die or all four of them were going to die. The doctors confronted James with the tragic news that either the mother or the children, the decision would be his, would die. Two of the doctors did not offer a recommendation as to which way James ought to go. Really, James and Monica, but for the most part, she's been out of it. Two of the doctors did not offer a recommendation. A third doctor, the Christian one, who'd been praying with them, recommended saving the life of Monica, the mother. That doctor said, said, James, after all, as tragic as it is to lose the babies, if the mother lives, there is at least the possibility that she could have other children. In the waiting room, there were several families with several patients. With James and his family was James's brother and his wife. The doctors told James, they said, they said, you can think about this overnight if you need to, but by morning, you're probably going to need to make a decision. She's hemorrhaging that much, and we have been unsuccessful in staunching the bleeding. And so in the process of staying up all night, overnight, James consulted his brother. And his brother said, James, we think you ought to save the children. It's your decision. And James respects the opinion of his brother. In the waiting room, overhearing this discussion is a minister. And he has stayed quiet during most of the conversation, but he decides to step over and, in, and interject an opinion into the conversation. He said, he said, look, I don't know you. He said, I understand your name's James because I overheard y'all talking. I pastor 
such and such church here in town. Here's my recommendation. You didn't ask for it, but here's my recommendation. He said, doctors don't know everything. He said, I suggest you just need to trust the Lord and, and go right on through the pregnancy. And he put the results in the hands of the Lord. Now, what would you do? Would you take the advice of the doctor, who's a Christian, who said, save Monica, the mother, or would you take the advice of the brother, who's also a Christian, his wife, who said, save the children, three lives versus one, it was the one for three principle, or would you take the advice of the minister who said, you have to, you have to trust the Lord and, and go through the pregnancy, all the way through. Are you comfortable taking a poll? You know I love these polls. If you would follow the advice of the doctor who said save Monica the wife, raise your hand. Okay, thank you. If you would take the advice of James's brother and his wife who said save the children, raise your hand. And if you would take the advice of the minister who said, doctors don't know everything, you just got to leave it in the hands of the Lord and go all the way through the pregnancy, raise your hand. Wow. We're just not going to have a unanimous vote on anything around here, are we? We're not. After thinking about it all night, James took the advice of the minister. And he lost all four of them. You just never know. It's hard to know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this business of trying to decide the right thing to do, it's getting a little uncomfortable. It's like sitting on briars. Please help us to know the right thing to do. In Jesus' name, amen.